Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Whether you read Hebrew or not, if you see those three letters at the top of the text, that is the name of the parsha. The name of the parsha is Naso. And if you look at verse 22, again, even if you don't read Hebrew, look at verse 22. That word is the same three letters as you see up there, because that's where they take the name of the Parsha from, from the first usable word in the Parsha, other than God spoke to Moshe saying, because then every Parsha would be called God spoke to Moshe saying. Um, so naso, to lift up, right? So remember, if you, um, if you can, remember that root, that shoresh, nun, sin, Aleph, those three letters, it's a very important stem. It's a very important root uh, in this week's Pasha. Uh, and there's some beautiful spiritual teachings on the, on the unfolding, if you will, of this stem, of this tripartite root throughout the Pasha. And it's a bit of a spoiler, but the next place uh, we're going to see it, um, or one of the last places we'll see it in the Parsha is in the priestly benediction, which is in this Parsha. So in Hebrew, the nun is kind of funky. Nuns get a little crazy. So sometimes the nun drops. So we're going to see several occurrences of the nun dropping out of this stem, but it's still this stem just missing the nun. And that means when we get to the priestly blessing, Yisa Adonai Panavelecha, may God lift up God's face towards you. That is this stem. The nun drops, and the singular male future tense comes in. Yisa, may God do this in the future. Okay, so but it's that sin and that olive. It's the same word, same root. All right. So let's let we're in the first part of the triennial reading, but I want to spend a little time later with Rabbi Mark Margolius's Torah commentary from the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, um, which is going to bring in different parts of the Parsha as well. All right, so let's look at what's going on here. So as usual, God says to Moshe saying, So now Moshe, remember the Levites were not counted in the census because they don't fight. So in the census of everyone from 20 and up who is going to be part of the, the fighting force, they are not counted because they're not conscripted into the army. They are of Israel. They are, they're given their own duties. And so we're getting the same language here as we got when we counted um, everybody else, right? That this idea of lifting up the head to count people, that people matter. They are not just numbers. So lift up the head of all of the descendants of Gershon, Levet Avotam, by their ancestral house, Le Mishpachotam, to their extended family units. Mishpacha here, Mishpoche, um, family, right, does not mean the nuclear family. It means the extended family, more like a clan. All right, so the tribe of, uh, I mean, so this, the, clan, the Gershonites are being counted here from 30 years and up to the age of 50. These are the ones who are obligated to the service of Ohel Moed, to the tent of meeting. And what, what is their service? Zot avodat mishpachat ha-gershoni la'avod ulamasa. So this is the way that they're going to serve. Um, the, 
the you know group of Gershonites, la avod to serve, and here we go again, ulamasa. You see that sin and that olive at the end of that word? We're back to the shoresh. Their their work is to serve ulamasa and to lift up, to carry. In this case, naso begins with to lift up their heads to count them, and here. A similar meaning to that word is to lift up, meaning porterage. Lift up, meaning put it on your shoulders to carry it. Vinasu, here we go again, naso, right? Vinasu, that, that vav makes it plural. Vinasu, what are they going to carry? They're going to carry yoyota mishkan. They're going to carry the cloth of the mishkan, the tent of meeting with its covering, the covering of dolphin skin. Again, remember, this is not the skin of dolphins. God forbid, um, and the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they're going to carry that. What else? The hangings of the enclosure, the screen at the entrance of the gate ooh, of the enclosure that surrounds the tabernacle, the cords thereof and the altar and all their service equipment and all their accessories, and they shall perform the service. So this is their sacred service. All the duties of the Gershonites, all their porterage and all their service shall be performed on orders from Aaron and his sons. You shall make them responsible for attending to all of their porterage. Look at the end of the sentence in Hebrew. Et kol mas'am. All of their lifting up. All right. V'zot avodat So this is the duties of the clans of the Gershonites. They shall attend to them under the direction of Itamar, son of Aaron, the priest. And as for the um, house of Merari, they also need to be counted. Here, the word used for counting is tifkod. We saw this word before, pakad, right? We've seen this word a lot. Uh, we've talked about it in years past, and we talked about it last week. So to give them a role, to give them a job, is to give them dignity. So they are being counted because they are going to be assigned this role, and in that sense, it is, it is dignifying that they have a role. Again, from the age of 30 to 50, because th- those are the people who are conscripted into the service of the uh, Mishkan. And here's their porterage here, Mas'am. You see that third word in the Hebrew, Mas'am. They're carrying, they're lifting up is what? Um, that's going to be the planks, the bars, the posts, and the sockets of the tabernacle. The posts around the enclosure and their sockets, pegs, and cords, all these furnishings and their service, you shall list by name the objects that are their porterage tasks. We're going on talking about their duties pertaining to their various duties, the tent of meeting under the direction of Itamar, son of Aaron the priest. So he's in charge of all this business. So Moshe and Aaron and the right? So the fourth word in the Hebrew, what's a nasi? A nasi is a prince, is a leader. Guess what? It's the same shoresh, people. Nasi, nun, sin, aleph. Yud, nasi. So someone who has been raised up. Someone who has been lifted up. That's the word for nasi. For, you know, a a very high-ranking person in the clan. 
So they are, they're part of the counting, right? So Vayivkod, Moshe, so Moshe and Aharon and the Nisi Eha Edad, the leaders of the community are now counting the Kohatites from 30 to the age of 50 who are subject to the service of the Mishkan. Those recorded by their clans came to 2,750. Remember, we might want to look at the word LF, not as thousand, but as a unit that would change this number. This uh, translation of the Torah translates Alpaim as 2,000 rather than as two units. So we can think, think, about how we want to translate that. Um, that was the enrollment of the Kohatite clans, all who performed the duties relating to the tent of meeting, whom Moshe and Aaron recorded at the command of Adonai through Moshe. The Gershonites, who were recorded by the clans of their ancestral house from the age of 30 to 50. We get a number for them. This was the enrollment of the Gershonite clans performing the duties relating to the tent of meeting. The enrollment of the Merarite clans as we saw, and then we get a number for them. That was the enrollment of the Merorite clans, all the Levites whom Moses and Aaron, the chieftains of Israel, recorded by the clans of their ancestral house from the age of 30 to 50. That comes to 8,580. So all of the Leviim, all of the tribe of Levi, who's from 30 to 50, because, of course, they're going to serve in other ways. Only these clans are doing the porterage, but the other Levites also have their jobs. Each one was given responsibility for the service and porterage at the command of God through Moshe, and each was recorded as God had commanded Moshe. All right, so then we get who needs to be removed from the camp because they um, are in a state of impurity. And so we are getting a sense of what has to happen uh, in the camp to preserve the ability of the divine to be in the camp. And then we get the Nazarite business. All right. I'm trying to see how far along the, here we go. All right. Then after all of that, after the business with the Nazarite, which we're not going to talk about today, by Deber Adonai Moshe Lemor, God speaks to Moshe saying, Deber El Aharon Ve'el Banav Lemor, Ko Tivarchu Et Bnei Yisrael Amor Lehem. This is how you're supposed, God says, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is how you are to bless um, the people Israel. You will say to them, and now you can imagine quotation marks. Look at verse 26, and you see that Yud Sin Aleph, a form of the word to lift up, right? May God lift up his face towards you and grant you peace. So in doing this, you will place my name on the people Israel and I will bless them. So the priests are the agents of God's blessing. Right, so it's not the priests who are blessing the people. That is a we misspeak all the time when we say that. Yes, they are the agents of blessing, but where does the blessing actually get activated and come from? It comes from God. It is God who is blessing the people. the 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 priests are the conduit for that blessing. So when I bless the bar and bat mitzvah before the open ark, it's not me, right? The the blessing doesn't 
come from me. I'm the agent. I'm speaking the words that allows God to bless, you know, drawing the energy, if you will, of the universe down on this child. So that, right, that is, these words are spoken to the bride and groom before they go to the chuppah. It is spoken by the head of the family over the children on Friday night. This is, right, one of the the anchoring um, texts, and we've had it for this long. We've had it since the time of Torah, since the time of giving of Torah. All right, then I'm going to, I want to go to Mark Margolius. He has some beautiful, beautiful teaching on this. He has beautiful teaching on this that I think is very apropos uh, of what we're dealing with in the world today. All right, so go to where it says the portion opens, right? The portion opens and I need you all to move. Bella's head is on my text. Okay. The portion opens with and takes its name from the Hebrew verb naso, the root form of which connotes lifting, carrying, or bearing. This light motif occurs in various permutations throughout the Parsha, from its opening right to where we saw it was in the uh, priestly benediction. Yes? So here and elsewhere, the Torah describes the process of counting individuals for a sacred task as lifting up heads. And the subjects of these countings or liftings, once elevated, themselves are also charged with carrying or bearing that which is sacred, right? So he's pointing to the language of how do we count? We use this language of lifting up the head. Once your head is lifted up and you're given this assignment, you know, then what is your assignment? It's also to carry, to lift up. That's their work. After they've been, their head has been lifted up to be counted, they are assigned this work that is also the work of lifting up. So he goes now to this idea of the uh, priestly benediction. Sorry, I have a touch screen, so if I'm not careful, I make things happen that I don't want to happen. When we invoke this blessing, like the priests, we lift our hands to become channels of blessing and abundance. The third and final blessing usually considered the greatest of the three because it combines spiritual and material blessings, again, utilizes language of uplift. So Mark Margolius is reminding us that when the priests, even today, when we go to to do this bracha, to affect this bracha, when we do it, we raise our hands. So again, this idea of lifting up, and then the culmination of the bracha is that we ask that God's face be lifted up. He says, so he goes on to to translate that a little bit, but go down to the middle of that next paragraph, perhaps to pray that God's face be lifted towards another person is to express one's hope that the recipient will grow in the capacity to elevate that which has fallen and waiting to be uplifted. An alternative translation along these lines might be, may the God within you enable you to elevate that which has fallen. I found that to be very powerful language, um, particularly given the situation that we're living in right now. May you find whatever it is within you that's connected to the divine that allows you to lift up that which is fallen. All right, let's go, let's go a little bit more and then we can have some conversation. If you do right, shall there not be uplift, right? So this question that gets asked 
um, by our spiritual teachers in other places in the Torah, but we're not going to go too much into that, but it's about Cain and Abel. In dealing with Cain, we find ourselves in a state of pain, fear, and anger. We have the capacity to discern a divine impulse to bear and carry that reality, to, quote, lift up challenging emotions, clearing a path by which we might do the right thing. And then the, in, the next pair, in the next lines, you'll see this it, the italicized stuff. He goes to a Hasidic concept called Yerida Tzorech Aliyah, a going down in order to go up. So this is, yes, it's paradoxical. It's supposed to be. Um, so this idea exists all throughout Hasidic teaching and then in neo-Hasidism, so meaning in the spirituality of today. Yeridat Sorech Aliyah, that there is a going down in order to go up. And this, th- these are the words now of Rabbi Sheila Peltz Weinberg, who taught me uh, meditation. Um, I learned from her a million years ago, um, about meditation, about mindfulness practice um, during my times of retreat with IJS. We recognize that times of constriction are not separate from times of expansion. We realize that when we bring an attitude of mindfulness toward the ebb and flow of life, life does what it does, namely ebbs and flows. Indeed, we see that our reluctance to embrace the moments of apparent darkening actually blocks the natural flow of darkness into light. We see in our minds and body the desire to cling to the pleasant and avoid the unpleasant. This is useful wiring. It is important for our survival. However, when we act only out of habit and reactivity and always push away or run away from the unpleasant, we limit our freedom and growth as conscious human beings. And to finish out a little bit of, of her teaching, in mindfulness practice, we are cultivating the capacity to be with the downslide, the yirida, and see that as we bring our full attention to this moment, the veils lift. Down is revealed as a ramp for up. Patient attention to the fog allows the sun's magnificence to be perceived. It is the ability to be here, to be still, to enter the spaces, the unknown in-between that nourishes the spiral of growth. All right, I'll let you take that in for a second. Right? So spiritual reality consists of both dark and light, fog and sunshine. And I think what Rabbi Peltz-Weinberg is saying is she's saying that when we only choose to look at the light, we're missing a big component of life and of spiritual growth. That darkness, of course, will become light. That's why we use that metaphor, that day will turn into night, night will turn into day. But to stand in the dark and deny that it's dark doesn't help, right? It just doesn't help. Um, that, we, that when we are able to hold the, all of it, we see that life does both. It ebbs and flows, ebbs and flows, waxes and wanes. And we have a very strong preference for the good stuff, for the light, for the fullness, right? We have a, we have a hunger and a connection and an attachment to all of that stuff. And as she says, that's, that's good wiring. That keeps us from doing stupid things. And that keeps us connected to things that will help us survive. However... 
We're not here just to survive. We're here to live and we're here to live fully. And if we're here to live fully, then it means we need to take those experiences that are unpleasant. We need to take those things that we don't love so much and allow them to create growth in our world and in our consciousness and in our spirits. And we can't grow without certain kinds of experiences that are uncomfortable. And that means as human societies as well. It doesn't just mean the individual, right? It means as a society, we're going to have times where we're up and there's going to be times where we're on the downslide and we don't like being on the downslide, but that's what leads to change. That's what leads to growth, the constriction that leads to an explosion. And as we look at the streets filled with people, the last you know day or two have been entirely peaceful, except when they get provoked. Um, it's, it's been loud. It's been angry. It's been painful. It's been coming out of anger and rage and being fed up with injustice. I'm not saying it's pleasant, but I'm saying it's been peaceful. And people have been out there in the streets and it's about time for change. And sometimes this is the way that change is going to happen. And do we, do we wish it was just that everyone went and voted and then it was all fixed? Of course, that's, that's not the way things happen. Right. And so as as um, I was going to say riotous, you know, as, as, as ugly as it can feel on some levels that there's so much rage in the streets, there's also a commitment to making change. And sometimes this is the way change happens. Judith, I see you have your hand up. Thank you. Thanks to Bert. Uh, Liam Kidney, the Catholic priest in our town, I think said some of the most profound words that go right along with this. He said, grief is the price we pay for loving. And that reflects the same idea that it goes up and down, but who would not love because we're afraid of losing. We have to accept that grief is the price we pay and unhappiness is the price we pay for sunshine. And we must pay all those prices and investment. Right. If we're yes, not going to yes. invest in life, if we invest in relationships, if we invest in ideas and ideals and systems and whatever, if we invest, then we're going to lose sometimes and it's going to cost us. Sometimes. And it's worth it. So, right. So the only choice is to say it's worth it unless you want to say none of it's worth it. And I'm just going to live in my cave and not pay any attention you know, to what's happening you know, outside my door, which some people choose to do. Right. That, that's a legitimate choice. Um, is it the choice that our tradition tells us to make if we want to be growthful, full, mature, spiritually responsible human beings? No. 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 We're called into relationship with each other, relationship to ideals and values, relationship then to the challenges that living in human society right, brings with it. And we're seeing that happening in our own time, in our own neighborhoods, on right the streets of our of our city. Um, I see that my Chavruta partner, Rabbi Hannah Lehner, has joined us. Welcome. It is an honor to have you in class. It is an honor to learn with you. Um, we, we don't see each other. We just listen to each other on the old kind of style telephone, but we've been studying together for years now, and um, it continues to be one of the greatest sources of, of spiritual richness and growth in my life. Thank you, and in my life, too. It's so nice to be here and study with, with all of your chevra. 
All right, let's do a little bit more text, um, and then we can talk a little bit more if we want. All right, so here, this is just a beautiful piece um, that he brings in here. So he says, here we might apply the midah of savlanut, deriving from a Hebrew root connoting to bear, as in bearing weight or burden. Savlanut is usually translated as patience, but it more literally connotes holding weight, bearing the burden. This midah enables us not only to be with challenging experiences and emotions, but also to allow others to support us as we do so and to assist others who are struggling as well. Let's go on to the next page. As our ancestors prepared to leave Sinai, they likely wondered how they could preserve the sense of deep connection and trust they'd experienced in that place. As they encountered the inevitable challenges and setbacks of the journey ahead, they had already built the Mishkan, the tabernacle, as a kind of portable Sinai to accompany them in their travels. But only in this parasha, as they learn the skills of lifting and bearing the components of the Mishkan, do they learn how to maintain that deep sense of connection and holiness in the midst of everyday living. So, what Mark Margolius, Rabbi Margolius does here is he says, so what is one of the spiritual aspects, the midah? We've talked about midot, right? Spiritual characteristics. What, what's a midah that can be helpful when we're on this yirida side of things, the, the downslide of things, the dark side of things? What, what is a midah that is helpful? And he says savlanut, which anyone who speaks Hebrew knows savlanut means patience, right? And often Israelis do it accompanied by a gesture like this, savlanut, right? Like, chill out, just chill. Savlanut, patience, I'm getting there, <laughs> right? So, um, so it's this sense of, yeah, calm down, hang in there, it's, just stay with me, <laughs> right? And that's often how we think about patience, but I love what he does here. He goes instead to the actual root of the word, lisbol, to suffer, so Savlanut comes from Lisboa to suffer, to suffer that which has to be born. And in that born meaning ending in an E, right? That has to be born, that has to be carried. What do we have to carry in this moment? And how do we find the strength, the ability to hold what has to be held right now? This is the spiritual aspect of Savlanut. And I think it, it's so helpful because Often I feel like we Americans are like can-do attitude, that Protestant work ethic, and I'm going to get out there and I'm going to do something. And that's, that's sometimes the only way we as Americans understand contributing. That's sometimes the only way we understand, you know, being actively participating in what's happening at the moment is to do something. And I think what's so beautiful about how he teaches Savlanut in this context is sometimes the, the most active thing we can do is hold what needs to be held. To bear up in the moment, to suffer what needs to be suffered. And I don't mean suffering like, oh, you know, don't worry, I'll sit in the dark. Not that kind of stuff. Like to, to truly carry what needs to be carried right now. That that is sacred work. That is avodah. That is service. And we forget that. I think I don't have to be in the street. I was told to stay home. I don't know about y'all, but like I got that urgent alert that said, stay home. Cause there's some credible reports that there might be looting in the Palisades. 
And the more people that are on the street, the more cover is provided and distraction is provided for the looters who were scouting the stores and escape routes in the Palisades. So it was an odd thing like to realize I could contribute by keeping my butt at home. And same with this whole quarantine business, right? We're all climbing the walls. We're all going a little batty. We're all going a little nutty. Um, but really, it's been the work of Savlanut. It's been the work of patiently every single day making the choice to not do stuff, <laughs> to not go shopping, to not go to a restaurant, to not be sitting on the beach with 7 million other people. And that, for, for us, I think he's bringing this teaching, which is so helpful for me right now. The teaching, we're not just waiting. We're just waiting for a vaccine, sitting around passively, just doing nothing. We are doing the work of Savlanut. We are doing the work of holding what needs to be held. We are doing the work of taking care of each other by doing that. By me staying home means I keep Judith Ubik safe. That, that is a profound thing. When you look out and see that lots of people who don't know each other are choosing to stay home to protect those who are vulnerable. And so um, it was a really important teaching for me right now, given that I feel so helpless in the, in the face of so much of what's happening right now, but that that's okay. Because helping sometimes is about participating in things like this, us talking about it, us sharing about it, us coming together to learn Torah together. Us, There's lots of ways that we're holding one another through this. It's not about being out there in the world doing stuff. It's about being here together and doing the work of masa, of carrying and lifting up, as he said earlier, lifting up that which has fallen. Um, and so... Uh, sorry, I've been talking a lot. Okay, Bert? This makes me think of Genesis, of Breshit, of uh, the whole uh, parable of paradise and the message that we were not made to be living in paradise, that our lives are a lot more complicated. There's this sense, in, in, in the, particularly in American society, that we're here and everything is about happiness, that we should just be happy. And as long as we're happy, then everything's okay. And if we're not happy, things are no good. And, and what I'm hearing you saying, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that when things are not happy, that's not something we should run away from, but we should not glory in, but realize that's a part of life. And, and day and night and night and day, and I'm sure other people may feel this, you know, in, at these times, I have good days and I have bad days. There are days that I wake up and I don't know why, but it's not a great day. <laughs> there are other days that I wake up and it's a wonderful day. And uh, I think part of the message here is we need to embrace both and not realize we were not meant to be here in paradise. At least that's the Jewish tradition. Paradise is not what it's about. Nice. Thank you, Bert. Um... I've, there's so much that comes to mind, right? The, the teaching by Kushner, that, that beautiful teaching. No, sorry. Yeah, by Schulweiss. Kushner or Schulweiss, one of them. Um, about the tree of, of knowledge, right? That, you know, God makes paradise. God makes Eden and then smacks this tree down in the middle of it and says, don't eat from that tree, <laughs> right? The tree of the knowledge between good and evil. Why? 
Why do that? If you want people to live in Eden in paradise, why do you stick something in the middle and say, don't, you can eat everything, but not that, right? And the, the teaching is that because God wants moral goodness from us, right? The choice, the wisdom between good and evil so that we choose the good. Because just hanging out in Eden, being blissed out all the time is not the point. God doesn't want perfection. If God wanted perfection, God would not have created that tree and the forbidding of eating from it, right? That To your point, that we, we're not, that's not what God wants. God wants us to have to wrestle and struggle with making choices. And in this case, holding stuff that's not easy to hold and making the right choice anyway and, and being there for each other and, and doing all of the stuff right, that that we've talked about needing to do for one another in this time, and that it's not about being happy. And I don't know about y'all, but this is, there's been one relief for me in all of this, and that's, I'm not seeing people's perky Facebook posts about their plate from last night, right, while I was eating a hot dog, right, you know, doing, you know, (laughs) prep work or in a finance committee meeting, and they're at some lovely restaurant or they've gone on this vacation and they're in Tahiti and look at the water and look at us in our (laughs) swimsuits and we're so svelte and so brown, right? So it's been a relief to not have to look at that from everybody right now because we're kind of unified in a way, right? Around here's what quarantine hair looks like in my house. You know, here's (laughs) what quarantine slippers are wearing out, right? That's it's been kind of nice, actually, to not have this glorification of happiness and conspicuous consumption. And look what a great time we're having and a great meal we're having and a beautiful family we have in this perfect moment. And I mean, to constantly weigh our experiences next to everybody's happiest, most beautiful moment, right, on, on social media. That has been um, a democratizing relief. And I think, um, to, to Bert's point, we've been sharing more deeply, I think, with each other than just showing how happy we are, because that's something that means we're successful, right? We're living a successful life if we're happy uh, in America. Jody, you want to say something? Um, Yeah, although I will say that I'm seeing a lot of posts about food that people are cooking. (laughs) It looks really good. You know, people are learning to cook really great foods. Um, You know, I really want to thank you for bringing in this whole idea of we are doing something. We're patient and being patient. And I remember, uh, I don't know, 13 years ago when my first granddaughter was born, I, I remember watching her, you know, babysitting and I wasn't doing anything because she was just sleeping. And I, I, I said, I, I'm not doing anything. And then somehow this voice came to me from within and it must be God speaking that said, you are doing something. You're sitting with her so she can sleep. And this hall, you know, listen, this time has been good days, bad days for all of us. Um, but I really like the idea of when you talk about that darkness can be the bridge to lightness. The, um, because that really gives me hope. I mean, some days are difficult now. Um, and to think, okay, so that's a bridge. That's a bridge, which is great because we all know we've been through tough stuff before. But um, this idea of that we are doing something, we are being patient, is just great. So thank you so much. Um, as Ed Dreyfus put up on the on the yeah. chat, you know, don't just do something, sit there. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, so uh, Joe. 
Joseph, I see your hand up, and Alexandra, I see yours as well. So Joseph and then Alexandra. Yeah. Reiterate and, comp- and kind of expand on the idea of the balance of life and the power of the perceived good and bad and the fullness that that brings in life, the gift of that and tying it to Eden and that tree not being a temptation as much as a part of something greater, a gift that like, I don't know if like you want to look at how the angels always look down at humans and go like, like, you know, an angel is built and has its purpose. Like that's the one thing it does, but a person can grow and choose and learn and expand and how fitting almost this, this, this pandemic looked like, oh my God, it was this horrible. What are we going to do? But what did it do? It made everyone stop, put down their idols. You know, in every culture, people, as they, as they come of age or they grow, they leave their idols. They go on a walk or a journey where they separate themselves from their comforts and they get clarity and closer to something greater than themselves, something within. And we all did that collectively. And what's happened now is not new but we're dealing with it in a different way because we're able to. And I think if I can look and see, if I sometimes can't see where my higher power is, I can look back and see where he, where, where it was. And I can see that now and, and how beautiful that is. And I try to remember that if I'm in pain, I'm growing. And that's a blessing to have that gift. All right. Well, there was a lot there, right? (laughs) So yes, yes. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, um, yeah, yeah, we'll let that sit. Um, thank you, Joseph. Alexandra? Um, I would say is in most of my young adult life, it was all about taking action and generally reacting and taking action. Um, and that momentum of that. And I, I really, love what you say about sometimes, you know, we don't have to, we have to redefine how we're doing things and we don't always have to be doing things. And the port and the importance sometimes of just not doing something. Sometimes it's just better to kind of sit back and take, have some patience and take time. But on the other hand, I struggle or I'm struggling right now with that. I'm able to do that because I feel like I have the privilege to do that. So I, I don't necessarily feel guilt. Um, but I feel worried that it's because I am, I have this privilege that I don't have to be out there in the streets and doing something or my life no, won't necessarily change dramatically that, um, I think that's the struggle a bit. Right. So, well, first of all, that's very Jewish. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sorry, I, I can't sit and have to hold all of this because I have a roof over my head and i so it's very Jewish that that's where you go is to feel guilty about it a little bit. But, um, but right, so of course, it's about acknowledging that we, yes, we are privileged enough that our job is to stay home, right? And we can because somebody, because the mortgage is going to get paid, the rent's going to get paid, 100%. But I think it's, it's one thing to feel, to struggle with that. It's another thing to say, I'm glad that I have enough that A, I can help some other people who really need it right now, whether that's driving food to people in West LA who are hungry and volunteering to do that. And people, we need to do that, by the way. We need volunteers for that. Um, and also, if I can give through the shul to what they're doing, to, through federation, to what they're like. So there's a way I can take what I have and help other people who are struggling right now. And to realize that we have different roles. The Gershonites and the Merorites we just read had different roles. They had different assignments. 
your assignment is not everybody else's assignment. So what you, you can't compare what you're supposed to do to what a frontline healthcare worker is supposed to do. They're vastly different jobs. It's vastly different responses that are called for. I don't have any useful skills at all on the front lines. None. My, so that's not my job to be out there because I'm just going to be another problem if I get sick, right? But somebody who does have those skills is called forward in this time to serve in a pandemic. If we were in something else, it would be another kind of person who's called forward in that situation. And that's why Torah is very clear that each clan had their own specific duties. Your job is not the same as somebody else's job, right? And we get into comparisons. It's what we do is we start to compare. Well, they have it so much harder than I do. Yes, and I'm not saying we should turn away from that hard reality and painful reality either. We shouldn't. But it's like, okay, so what can I do out of my privilege? Right? Because that's my job. I can only do my job. I can only live my life. Right. I, I can't be a nurse. I wish right now I could, and I could help, and I could take some risk, but I can't. And so I think it's just really important that we remember our job is our job. Given our situation, our biography, our challenges, our talents, our skills, our education, you know, our situation right now vis-a-vis our families, whatever it is, it's unique to us. And the work is to figure out what am I supposed to carry and how am I supposed to carry it right now? We're not supposed to do somebody. I can't do Rabbi Hanna's job, right? She's way smarter than me in so many ways. So it's, it's not, but that's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to do y'all. Jim, speak. Thank you, Rabbi. Um, I, I have found um, there's an expression called living comfortably with unresolved problems. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is a, uh, you know, until there's a, a vaccine, you know, the, the living is the way we did, you know, prior to uh, March when, when the pandemic, uh, you know, just, you know, uh, just grew and affected, you know, our community or, um, you know, is essentially staying in. So it has allowed, it's given me, I, it's, it's, it's part and parcel. I've had, I have go-to people that I could share whatever, you know, that I'm dealing with and conversely those go-to people or other people come to me, you know, and just sharing, you know, what's going on or how we're dealing with and what it is, is we're all dealing with the same circumstances of being staying in. Um, and, um, you know, I, another circumstance that I'm dealing with, you know, it's like I'm waiting still for my uh, pandemic unemployment assistance. You know, talk about something being powerless over. But it'll, you know, it'll happen when it happens. Um, I, I just, just to wrap up, I, you know, there was this wonderful, and I shared with you, Rabbi, and uh, with, with Judy, this, uh, this op-ed from a few several years ago. It was it was a friend of uh, it was a, pr- a friend of Maureen Dowd, who's a columnist for the New York Times. Um, and it wasn't her writing it, but her friend who happened to be a priest, and it was called "Why God." And if I must just share just a small brief passage from it, you know, because it sort of parallels to what we're talking about, but. Um, 
you know, this person was talking about, you know, the chaos or um, it was dealing with people who are, you know, how he deals with the people that are dying and death. And this had to do at the time of the shootings in Newtown at the, uh, the school in Newtown, Connecticut, back in the end of uh, 2012. And I'll just read just a, a small passage. I've never found it easy to be with people who suffer, to enter into the chaos of others. Yet every time I've done so, it has been a gift to me better than the wrapped in ribbon packages. I am pulled out of myself to be love's presence to someone else, even as they are love's presence to me. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. And thank you for sending that. I appreciate it. Audrey, did you have your hand up? A couple words that were mentioned, um, I think it was Alexandra used the word privilege. Uh, I, um, I think that's a good way to look at this as I perceive it. It is a privilege to be able to um, contribute by sitting home. Uh, the few times I have uh, gone to the market all dressed up uh, in pandemic wear, I will see someone without a mask. And I'm afraid to say anything to that person for fear they'll pull out a gun and kill me, um, as has been done. And um, But I think how selfish, how so selfish that person is. Uh, and, uh, and then the other thing that with the privilege, the last time I used the word privilege was when I sat for eight months every day to be next to my brother, Arnie, when he was uh, sick and dying. And I remember thinking that was a privilege for me. I didn't want to do it. I would have changed the world, but I felt it was a privilege. And, uh, and, I, and I thank you all for using the word privilege now um, because I hadn't thought of this as a, a privilege, and it's a good word um, for me. And by the way, vaccine, I heard something in the health field, I don't know if you did, uh, that they have predicted that 51% of the people won't take the vaccine. So I throw that out there. I don't know if you've heard it, but it happens every time there is an illness. People don't want the vaccine. Okay, that's all I have to say. Thanks, Thanks Audrey. Um, Laura Diamond. Um, what Alexandra said and the word privilege we're talking about brought up for me something a little bit um, that I've been thinking about lately, which is the the privilege of being white and not having suffered through the constant daily trauma um, that we don't, you know, that we don't have to experience that a lot of black people do and that it is not just a privilege, I guess because of that privilege, we are, it is incumbent on us to speak up more. Um, you know, we have known about our inequality for so long, and I have thought about it as, you know, gosh, such a, you know, a shame that this is the way the world is, and not about the urgency to speak up to do something about it. So um, to me, the, the last couple of weeks has been an opportunity to really learn, listen, reflect, 
listen more, be quiet, and then try to amplify when I do see something that just doesn't feel right. And rather than just saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe that person said it, to say, I have an obligation because of my privilege to speak up now so that somebody else can stop, stop feeling like they have to, so that a black person doesn't feel like it's incumbent upon them every time to say something. So that is where this is resonating for me in an obligation, yes, maybe to stay home, but also an obligation to put ourselves at some risk because we have not been, we white people, me, I will say, I'll just speak for myself. I've not been suffering the risks that other people have to suffer for no reason, you know, passively every day. So to take more risks is, it's a, it's, I will share with you a, a later a great link of a talk I saw on the difference between becoming a co-conspirator as opposed to just an ally, which is to put yourself in harm's way, not to break laws, but to civil, civil disobedience and why that's important for us who have less to fear to take those, to take those and to speak up more. Thank you, Laura. Um, so again, everyone needing to figure out what's their role. You know, how do they do that? When does it make sense to put ourselves at some risk? And when is it just not okay to do that out of pikuach nefesh, out of a, out of a need to, you know, to survive and to stay healthy. And so for each person that that's going to look different. And, um, and thank you for reminding us that we, you know, there are times we need to do something. Right. And um, I think I was just pointing to staying home as, as, you know, that we tend to think of not doing something as just totally not doing something. And that, that yet there's ways that not doing something can, can be really important and can be about caring and holding what needs to be held. And sometimes we're called out of the house to put ourselves at some risk, right? So that we are advocating for those who, who don't have a choice about risk. They, they risk their safety every time they get, you know, in a, a black man gets in a really nice car that he's earned and drives and is stopped by the cops, right? So 100%. And we each have to figure out, you know, what, what that is for ourselves. We have to figure out as a community, what is that for us? What are we ready to do? What are we ready? And we need people like you, Laura, who comes from such a clear activist background and, um, and knows enough and reads enough and cares to be about stuff enough to help us figure that out, right? We need leadership within our community to say, okay, here's what we need to be doing. Rabbi, I need you to sign this and we need to go to that and we need to do this, right? So we need, we need to do stuff as a community. We need to do stuff as a city. And certainly, right, as, you know, white Jews of privilege, right, this, this, is the, this is a rubbing point right now in our society, right? This is one of the rubbing points with identity politics is, you know, <laughs> to a lot of folks, we're Jews, therefore we're not white, right? To white supremacists, we're Jews, and we'll never be white. We'll always be Jews. But then to other folks on the left, we're privileged white people, Right. And so how, how dare we talk about being vulnerable or our past history of suffering or our PTSD around around our own persecution and oppression. So we're kind of as Jews, as white American Jews, we're kind of caught right now in a really kind of crazy place, which some of you heard me talk about out of my Hartman studies. But um, but but that's a, that's an uncomfortable reality that we're going to have to face. We're not used to as Jews feeling like the privileged people. Right. So you kind of bring up what. You know, we're, we're just not, that's not our collective identity. Our collective identity is that we're always oppressed. They're always trying to kill us. They're still trying to kill us, 
right? There, that's kind of culturally we've inherited this PTSD from so much anti-Semitism and such a long history of it. What we have to do as Jews now in America is we have to face our very real privilege. It's real, right? It's you know there. You know how many times I hear it could happen here, Rabbi. You don't understand. It could happen here. Okay, yeah, it could happen here, but. It is happening to other people right now. So I need to figure out how to own and use and not feel badly or ashamed about my privilege so that I can use it in a way that empowers other people because only I have access to certain halls of power or certain personalities of power, right? And certain blocks of power. And so as Jews, it's an uncomfortable moment for us, but we're going to have to deal. We're going to have to figure it out. And we're going to have to confront some stuff that's, that's not easy, right, for us, for us to hold and for us to confront. But that's what the Parsha is all about, is that that's the Avodah. That's the sacred work. That's the sacred service, is figuring out how to hold that power, how to hold that privilege, and to figure out what, what do we need to do with it? What are we called uh, to do with that power? I want to close with Rabbi Margolius, who writes beautifully here about this paragraph starting at like our ancestors, but we're going to come to the end of that. Like them, may we be endowed with the capacity to bear whatever life brings our way and elevate ourselves and others in doing so. May we come to know, as did they, that when we learn how to lift together, when we individually and collectively bear the burden, we can move mountains. So it should be that we have the willingness and keep building the capacity for lifting up together uh, what has to be born. And when we do that, when they were lifting the Mishkan people, they were lifting Sinai. So when we do it, when we really do it all together, we can carry the mountain from place to place. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.